from 2400 Sports, Odyssey, and Major League Baseball. This is the PBP Voices of Baseball. We bring you the people who bring you the game. Yes, this is the PBP Voices of Baseball. Matt Spiegel with you. Thank you to all of you who have checked out the recent episodes with Boog Shambi and with Jason Benetti. Lots of feedback on those. Just had a chance this week as the Cubs are playing the White Sox to have both of those men on Parkins and Spiegel. That's the day job. Afternoons on the score in Chicago. They were in person with us outside of Wrigley Field before Cubs Sox and that felt pretty special. I would seek out that conversation on the Odyssey app or wherever you're listening to this from Tuesday's Parkins and Spiegel show on the score. They told me, actually I've known that there is a group chat, like a group text message of all play-by-play people from around baseball, and I'm not allowed to be on. I'm, I'm, I'm not allowed. But I did three games, guys. I did three, I did three Cubs-Cardinals games at Wrigley. But no. No, they won't let me on. I get it. I need more reps. I need more games. So here's my idea. Maybe Pat Hughes could go into a different Hall of Fame every year, and I just get a weekend. Ryan Porth, what do you think about that idea? Like the National Radio Hall of Fame one year for Pat, and the whole booth goes to celebrate him, and I get in. We could also put him in the Dad Jokes Hall of Fame. I mean, he's great at that, too. Absolutely. Uh, Perhaps the Fishing Hall of Fame, uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'm not picky about this and i don't think he should be either so ryan do what you can arrange a hall of fame visit for pat every single year i'll look up where the popcorn uh, hall of fame is because he has popcorn in the fifth inning every game there you go or the coogee sweater the ugly coogee sweater hall of fame beautiful because he's 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 the king of that among other things um today's guest on the podcast howie rose mets radio voice And a man who has done so much in a long and fabulous broadcasting career. I really enjoyed talking to Howie. Wait until you hear what he did when he was just 13 years old in terms of broadcasting. A ton of wonderful stuff in here with Howie Rose of the Mets broadcast team now. So, Howie Rose, I've been looking forward to talking to you. I have... uh, as I've been doing this podcast, certain names have been on the list of folks that I got to track down, and you have been one of them, and I'm, I'm thrilled to talk to you. So thanks so much for doing it. My pleasure. The uh, The backstory here is that um, I've gotten to do just a few innings over the last three years, um, and then this year, all of a sudden, I got to fill in for Pat Hughes and did three games, did Cubs-Cardinals at Wrigley. But there's a fascination with the job and the role that I've always had, which has kind of been lit on fire by this pursuit. So talking to someone who really um, loves it, knows it, and is great at it is is a thrill. Well, thank um, you. Absolutely. I, I wanted to ask you first about the two play-by-play voices as a team uh, with no former player. As In researching your history, that it's you and Bob Murphy – uh, you know, at the beginning, right? Then, then Tom McCarthy, and and all the way through to last season with my friend Wayne Randazzo, right? And, and it feels like that the two play-by-play voice—it's kind of pairing that—that's pretty rare these days. It obviously has roots in the '30s and '40s with Mel Allen and 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 others in New York. But uh, to your knowledge, how rare is it these days? You know, I'm not assessed team by team what the sort of demographic breakdown is. 
it's more traditional on radio to have two quote professionals than it is on television. I did television for a number of years with the Mets and obviously worked with former players. And I love working with former players because I've got all the respect in the world for what a major league baseball player is and would never assume to understand all of the intricacies that only a player can understand. So that's why I've loved the opportunity to pick their brains on the air over the years. It's hard nowadays to find a former player who was willing to live the life that Major League Baseball broadcasting on the radio demands because most radio crews, and as I get older, I'm scaling back too, as many of my contemporaries are, but for the most part, when you sign on to do a radio broadcast as a, as a baseball announcer, you're signing on for the full schedule. And with the money these guys make nowadays, and I'm not trying to be you know glib about this in any way, it's hard to convince someone to go back and live that life after they're done playing, because I know people don't want to hear it. They think it's glamorous and glorious, and it is in a lot of ways. But to live the baseball life is to have no life for you know <laughs> six or seven months. And there's no way I can sugarcoat that. Um, your life is contingent upon weather conditions, that rare off day in the schedule. Maybe if you know you get to a point in your career, as I have, where you can get a little bit more time off, that's one thing. But for the most part, they're living the same life that they did when they played. And it's not an easy one, regardless of how anybody cares to perceive it from the outside. Yet this is the life you've chosen, Howie. This is this is it, and you've done it for so long. Um, it, what what's the origin story? Was there a moment before you're ten years old, or I, I I mean, when when was that? Was baseball play by play the thing, or was it broadcasting? Because I know you've done a ton of different realms of broadcasting. But really, it's been just baseball and hockey. And as I began to really develop my ideal for a career in broadcasting, it really centered around hockey at a very young age. When I say young, I mean starting at 16, 17, literally taking my tape recorder to Madison Square Garden and practicing doing play by play from my seat when I had season tickets for the Rangers, which mm. is a whole other story but <laughs> you know as far as baseball is concerned that was my uh, my introduction to sports via my dad and certainly was my first love and in many ways still is and the first voice I heard in 1961 that reeled me in was that of Mel Allen and uh, I used to walk around as a seven-year-old going, how about that? Or going, going, go. I mean, imitate a seven-year-old imitating an adult is crazy enough as is. But when you get as specific as imitating a, a renowned baseball announcer, that's kind of a whole other, other level of looniness. But but Mel's the first guy that um, that appealed to me and made me think, wow, this would be cool to do for a living someday. Wow, that's that that's wonderful. Um, I, I had the pleasure of being an intern at This Week in Baseball in 1987, oh. 1988, and wow. got got to just sit there and watch Mel voice those shows, those those last two years. What what, what but what was it like? I mean, I know Luke Gehrig loved his broadcasts, and you know, <laughs> you know what I mean. So it's like, so so, what was it like to hear Mel do a game? What 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 did you get from it? Well, you know, it's funny that if you look at New York baseball broadcasting history, there's been this common thread of announcers who came from the South with that little drawl, mm -hmm. which we somehow have found to be so appealing 
and almost infectious in in how we uh, receive it. I mean, Mel Allen, Red Barber, um, Lindsay Nelson, even to an extent, Bob Murphy. Um, but, you know, certainly later on, Tim McCarver, it reeled us in. I don't know why it just did. Maybe there's a certain relaxation that they that they bring with their um, cadence and their style and their delivery. But I certainly couldn't replicate that personally. But it's just it, it, there was something about the way they presented themselves and the game that was very familial, you know, it, 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 avuncular. I mean, it made them feel because of the amount of time we would spend watching and listening to them over the years that they were family members. Yeah, it, it's avuncular, absolutely. And, and also childlike, right? There's an exuberance in that voice. Like people still loved the game. And, 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 and that sense of love of the game and appreciation has to come through on some level, doesn't it? And it's got to be honest. It can't be contrived. But I think that's exactly what drew me to it in the first place, Matt. The fact that, you know, these guys not only were doing what I would love to do, but they clearly loved what they were doing. And I'll throw a guy who was not known as a baseball announcer, but the greatest basketball announcer who ever lived. And for my money, a, an equally great hockey announcer, my biggest influence, Marv Albert, into that mix. You know, Marv's enthusiasm for the yes. Rangers and Knicks when I was drawn to him in the late 1960s, um, again, is something that uh, I'll use the expression reeled me in and had me all in on wanting to do it professionally. Well, you know, and Marv's 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 love for the NBA on a national level was infectious. He just he, it, yep. every everything that he brought to it. All right, so you you took me there. Um, I'm not going to say who told me this, but his name rhymes with Wayne Randazzo. Um, it, but he, <laughs> the Marv Albert fan club at age 16, 13. Uh, I was 13 <laughs> when I started that. Literally, right. 1967. So did you connect with Marv yes. in that process? Yeah, I'll tell you how it worked. It was right around this time of year in 1967, a little bit later in, in August. And we, we had that little gap that week or two before school started, where if you were in day camp or vacationing with your family somewhere, you know, you had that little period before school started where you just kind of hung around and, and waited for the anvil to drop on your head, which was 10 months <laughs> of school. So we were sitting around uh, in the apartment where I lived with my parents, myself and a few buddies, and just, you know, killing a day, really. And I kind of blurted out, hey, why don't we start a fan club for Marv Albert? Because we had all just come off of our first season as hockey fans. And Marv had a lot to do with that, drawing us in. Uh, I fell in love with, with that and the Rangers in the 1966-67 season. So in the summer of 1967, when I uttered that, let's start a fan club for Marv Albert idea, and the other guys who were really dispassionate about it, as opposed to myself, said, okay. I said, well, maybe we ought to get in touch with him and see if we can have his blessing and maybe his help. Well, he worked at WHN Radio back then, 1050 on your AM dial in New York. And here I am, 13 years old, and I call the WHN switchboard and with my high-pitched adolescent voice, ask if it was possible to maybe somehow speak to Marv Albert, please. 
And the next thing I heard was a couple of beeps. And, and then after that, someone picks up the phone and it was unmistakably Marv saying, hello. And I went <laughs> right into full Ralph Cramden going, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to. I was absolutely nerve wracked over the phone, but I was able to eventually convey our um, wishes to start a fan club. And Marv, and Marv wasn't even... 30 of them. Marv was only about 26 years old at the time, too. He was wow. and he couldn't have been any nicer and more supportive. And and we created a um a, a connection and, and a relationship and a friendship that endures to this day. I mean, I, I was given an award by the baseball writers in New York this past January. And all those years later, it was Marv Albert who introduced me. And when Gary Cohen and I went into the Mets Hall of Fame this summer, uh, the Mets reached out and Marv did the voiceover for a video that they did in our honor. So, you know, my friendship and affection and, and connection to Marv continues, what is it, 56 years later. Wow, that's amazing. And and, and I, I have to assume that 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 benevolence, that kindness that he showed and that eventual mentorship is part of the reason why you deal with young broadcasters the way you do today. There's a pay it forward aspect to the business that I have found really, really lovely in, in, well, in, in doing the research. Well, Marv taught me that and not even through words, but actions, because I will always cherish the way he welcomed and then maybe he'd have a different word for it because I'm sure it was a pain in the butt uh, more not. But he embraced the idea of listening to what I gave him and not just saying, yeah, this is good. You're on your way or maybe do this or that a little differently. But he really dug into it. And and I'm more of even said he's told me over the years that I guess he you know he spotted a certain level of potential early on so that he knew he wasn't wasting his time that whether I would ultimately achieve any success or not wouldn't be from a lack of trying or commitment and so he really took me under his wing and and taught me a lot specifically through his words and suggestions but also just watching him go about his business professionally and how he treated people and how he, um, you know, just was every bit the, I wouldn't say pro, but the Hall of Famer that mm -hmm. he's come to be is something that, you know, you, you will ingest that via osmosis if you spend any time around it. Howie Rose, I grew up in New Jersey in the 70s and remember the commercials for 976-1313. And sports phone. Um, it, it, so it, you you logged some time at sports phone. Where I Did, started, yeah. yeah, you started there. So uh, was there uh, also you were a talk show host of the fan? Yeah, well, that came later. Yeah, that, that came, came later. That but, came but, way later. I, but I, but I, I ask about like there's all those different skills, be it update skills and then there's talk show skills, which is what I do five days a week. Um, so all those skills. Are, are, were they part of the baseball broadcaster that you were at the beginning of your baseball broadcast? Like, were you an entertainer um, that had to learn the technical aspects of play-by-play, -play, or were you a technical play-by-play -play guy who had to learn to be an entertainer? That's a great question. And I would offer the vast differences between broadcasting baseball and hockey as an example but with a little more specificity, since you brought up the talk show, that was nothing I ever really endeavored to do. I kind of fell into it 
and enjoyed it, but all the while was focused on becoming a play-by-play guy, which I was doing concurrently once I started doing the Rangers and also the talk show on WFAN. But I, I had worked very, very hard at developing and then refining my skills as a hockey broadcaster before the opportunity to do baseball came along. So whether on radio or television, I learned the broadcast baseball, if I've even learned it to this point, uh-huh. on the job in the major leagues, which is a thankless endeavor. And I, to your question specifically, struggled at first separating what had become the part of a talk show host that had become ingrained in me and understanding that when you're broadcasting a game, you're not doing a talk show, you're not on a soapbox, you're describing everything that's happening around you when you're doing radio as opposed to television. Television, by the way, just as an aside, is easy. Doing any sport on television compared to radio is like stealing. It's criminal that you get paid so much more on television when the job is so much harder and ultimately more satisfying on radio. But apart from that, yeah, I had to learn to subjugate a lot of what had become my sort of natural tendencies when I started doing baseball on radio because they don't necessarily sync up. Yeah, I, I, I'm learning that exact thing. Uh, you know, I just did those three games and then talked about it with a couple of broadcasters for this podcast afterwards, talked about the experience. And there's things like like my tone, the tone when you're doing play-by-play has to be pretty straight. You're observing and you're kind of reporting. Like I can't even, even if I think it's a good tone, that's, oh man, isn't this amazing? Um, you can't even, you should, really shouldn't even bring that necessarily. It's got to be a little more honest and clean. Does that, does that resonate with you, that thought? Well, the big word, the most important one to keep in mind, unless you happen to work for the Baltimore Orioles, is honesty. <laughs> and that's a very, very important element to yeah. presenting a game on radio because they can't see it. Your, your listener is depending on you he or she, or they're trusting you and whatever your passion for the team or, or teams that you might broadcast on a, on a regular basis, your first obligation is to give a fair analysis and an honest analysis of what's happening on the field. And then everything else kind of falls in behind that. But if your audience can't trust you, then you've got nothing. And I think what we're learning from this debacle in Baltimore is that the fans want honesty and they appreciate honesty. And if a small minded, small town mentality owner or general manager or broadcast executive thinks otherwise, well, the fans are going to let them know that they're wrong. And, and that might be the best thing to come out of this whole Kevin Brown incident in Baltimore is that, you know, an organization can try to play its fans for fools. But when the fans respond in the opposite fashion to the contrary, then hopefully it'll be a learning experience for ownership and management in Baltimore and hopefully everywhere else that, you know, you might want your announcers to be, quote, homers, but you've got to implore them to be trustworthy. And I would hope that's the lesson that comes out of this whole thing. No, oh, here, here, uh, the free Kevin Brown chance that Wasn't erupted. That 
uh, unbelievable. You, you you get chills. It's just uh, it's just kind of a beautiful expression of of the fans' desire to to have their baseball handed to them, as you say, with with honesty. You'd think the Angelos family would have learned from the John Miller stuff more than th- almost thirty years ago, but no, I, I, I guess well, not. You, yes, you would have, Matt. You certainly would have. But you know, when you are the the imperial, grand, high, exalted Mister Gruler in an organization, you can be tone deaf. And not have to answer to anyone until the opposition comes. And, you know, the free Kevin Brown chance, um, the, it, it was organic. And it, it repels the suggestion that fans want an announcer who's just root, root, rooting for the home team. That's part of it. I mean, I, I can't hide behind some cloak of um, objectivity is the wrong word because I think we, we try to be objective. But, you know, if anybody thinks I'm doing a Mets game and, and, and don't want the Mets to win, well, they, they laugh off that suggestion. I was a Mets fan since day one. And in all the years I've been a Mets broadcaster, they know I want the Mets to win, but that doesn't stop me from giving an honest account of what's happening on the field. That's the only agenda. Just be honest. Be fair. If you have to criticize a player, it's not personal, and and, and you can't bludgeon them over the head. A guy makes a bad play, you report he made a bad play, and you move on. Yeah, uh, your, your legit fandom makes the honesty more valuable, frankly. I, I always think of... Uh, of Animal House. They can't say that about our pledges. <laughs> Only we can say that about our pledges. Well played, Matt. Very well played. Um... Did you ever have a moment, maybe before before a level of security kicked in, where you where, where you worried about something you said, where you were being honest about, uh, uh, about Mets struggles? Because Lord knows there were a lot of them. For a lot well, in the in the early days of my play-by-play tenure with the Mets, when I was still trying to shake off my talk show background, I might have been a little more caustic than I needed to be about certain things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was never told, don't say this, but it was suggested to me that I might have been able to say it a little differently. And and I I understand that and, ex- and accept it because... As we said earlier, there is this separation between talk show host and play-by-play broadcaster. And obviously, there are going to be times when your opinion is not only uh, welcome, but it's insisted upon, you know. But again, I've learned over the years, there's a way to do it. There's a way to say it. And you don't make it personal. I mean, once in a blue moon, you might just have one of those uh, difficult relationships with someone and you have to work extra hard not to make it personal. And in my talk show days, um, there were a couple of times that I did get into personal stuff um, with certain management people back in the day. But that was just because of a, a wide philosophical gap in how a show that was predicated on opinions had to be mm-hmm. presented. And, um, you know, that was something that I think back now, and it's over 30 years, um, was unfortunate, but I think it helped really make me a better broadcaster. I think that navigating the nuances of these kind of relationships is fascinating, and a lot of listeners don't know that's what's going on, but they know it well executed when they hear it. If it's in your tone, 
about a play like it, they they know how you feel um but but at the end of the day you are an employee of the team you're part of the team in that way so you know more than you're allowed to say and that's that's okay that 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 comes with the trust of you being judicious and is and it is a part of the job it comes down to the people trusting you to do that job on some level absolutely and you have to build that trust you have to work to earn their trust and I don't think that however talented a young broadcaster might be, you can establish those credentials in the short term. It takes a little time. And yeah. I, th I think that that's, that's fine because it develops honestly and organically. And you kind of know, you get a sense when you've made the connection as a broadcaster between your audience and, um, and yourself. And uh, and I think that ultimately allows you to feel a little bit more confident, not not as hubris, but just in in a in a way mm -hmm. that allows you to speak your mind and know that you've figured out what the balance is and, and that you're telling the fans what they need to hear and that management is going to understand why you're saying it the way you're saying it. And, and hopefully there's a symbiotic relationship that develops there where everybody gets on the same page. Let's get technical for a couple minutes here, Howie Rose. Um, sure. How do you how do you keep score? What do you use? And, uh, and, and, and has it evolved through the years? Oh, sure. I use Bob Carpenter's scorebook now. And when I was doing television, which meant I wasn't doing every game, I used large scorecards. Um, everybody's got a different look to it. Gary Cohen gave me a couple of his very, very early on. And I tweaked that because, you know, Gary was in the minor leagues for several years before ascending to the major leagues. And, and he learned to do baseball on radio in a way that I only wish I might have had the opportunity. But his scorecard's a little bit more um, uh, complicated than mine is. He's got boxes where he would chart each, each pitch. Nowadays, we don't need to do that because you just follow the game on MLB game day while you're on the air. And, and every little piece of information that you used to have to keep track of yourself uh, is there for you. So um, I used the cards when I was doing about half the games. But then when I started doing exclusively radio, which meant doing virtually every game, uh, I, I needed a, an easier way to kind of have the games cataloged. And so Bob's scorebook is great. Um, and I, I've been using that now for 17, 18 years. Yeah, um, industry standard uh, at this point. Uh, it's, it's it's amazing. Um, tell us a part of your game prep that you can't ignore. Like, I have to do this before every single game or else I'm not feeling ready. Have dinner. <laughs> I, I don't work well on an empty stomach. Uh, I got to stay hydrated. Um, but as far as the preparation is concerned... It, it can and people may not think this is the way it should be, but sometimes the preparation fluctuates from from game to game. If you're doing a three or a four game series in baseball, the bulk of your preparation is done before the first game. And then you kind of fine tune from there. So my scorecard preparatory to the third or fourth game of a series is going to look a little less detailed prior to the first pitch than my first one will. And you've got information stored in your head. You don't need to jot everything down. You know from having researched it before the series 
uh, where these teams stand in various categories statistically. So whereas you might want to write that down the first time, you know where to find it, the second, the third, the fourth. So yeah. I, I'm a little more laxed in getting ready for the final game of the series than I am for the first game of the series. And again, I think you kind of learn to do that as you get comfortable in your own broadcasting skin over the years. Uh, I might not have had the, the, the confidence in my ability to do that uh, early on, but now it's a little bit more rote. I think that's the dream is that you internalize so much of that stuff that you, you, you can do it, um, you know, with different levels of, of, of preparation and time, depending on what's available to you. Is there a, uh, is there a specific item that you'd like to always have with you in the booth can be a good luck charm or a talisman or, or anything that has to be there? (laughs) Wow. That's a good question. Nothing for superstitious sake sake. Um, none of that at all. Uh Um, I know this sounds crazy, but over the years, um, following other reporters or announcers on Twitter or now X really becomes imperative because Mm. they're giving you information on things happening in real time during games elsewhere that are going on elsewhere while we're on the air. And that can provide some very, very important and, you know, even if it's just from the standpoint of being... um, you know, just is something to think about information within the scope of a game that um, that you can get in. I mean, there's there's never any shortage of opportunities to, if not necessarily veer far away from the game, then find other ways to tie everything together. And the information you get on social media can help you with that regard. Yeah, um, I've, I've seen you active on there, and it, it, it makes sense. Gathering uh, information, always in the knowledge acquisition business uh, here. Got to be. Uh, with how, yeah, right? Got to be. Um, it, all right, so this is this is broad, but I'd love to know where your head goes. Um, because <laughs> so we're <would> sanctioned. <laughs> we can go find a moment in the booth that you loved, that we could go pull and listen to. First thing that comes to your mind that you're comfortable with everyone hearing so wondering what comes to mind when I ask it that broadly. Well, that's a pretty loaded question because I can give you a lot of examples. Um, the one that, you know, that stands out and it wasn't a great call per se, because we'd reached something of an anti-climax by then, but it was the night in late October, 2015, when the Mets won the national league pennant in Chicago, uh, they were comfortably ahead in the ninth inning. There was very, very little mystery about how it was going to turn out. In fact, it was the completion of a four-game sweep over the Cubs. But when Jerry's Familia threw a call strike three past Dexter Fowler, and those words, the Mets win the pennant, came out of my mouth on the air in real time, words that I dreamt of saying since April 11, 1962, when the Mets played their first game in the National League. And I was already then fantasizing about you know, the possibility of being a baseball announcer someday. You know, all of those things kind of coalesced that night. Here's the payoff pitch from Familia to Fowler on the way. And it's in there, strike three call. The Mets win the pennant. The New York Mets have won the National League pennant. Put it in the books. The New York Mets, for the first time in 15 years, are champions of the National League. 
and they are mobbing each other out behind the pitcher's mound. They have completed a four-game sweep of the Chicago Cubs in the National League Championship Series. They win game four, eight to three. And there's a point in the aftermath of the immediate call as I continue to describe what I was seeing and, you know, relate the emotions for, I don't know, 30, 45 seconds in all before my partner would come in. Maybe it was longer than that. But I remember saying... All of the focus now on the New York Mets. They're headed to the World Series against either Toronto or Kansas City. We won't know until at least Friday. And right now, I guarantee you, the New York Mets don't care. And just prior to saying they're in the World Series, you may not even be able to hear it, but I felt it. And I can hear it because I know where it is. My voice cracks just a little bit. And I started to really squeeze the skin on my leg with my thumb and forefinger to keep myself from maybe breaking down a little bit because it was that emotional for me. But one that's a little bit more evident, and I only bring this up because as we record this, uh, David Wright is going to be a guest of ours in the booth tonight in the fifth inning. Uh, He's in town. He's involved in the New York Police Department versus New York Fire Department baseball game going on uh, this Thursday night, August 10th at City Field. David comes from a uh, background where his dad was a police chief in, in Virginia, so this is very close to his heart. But anyway, um, back in 2015 again, when the Mets were on their way to the pennant, David missed probably four months of that season. Uh, mm-hmm. He was um, dealing with spinal stenosis. And he came back dramatically in Philadelphia. And his first time up, he hit a home run into the second deck in left field. Holy smokes! The captain is back! He hits one into the upper deck in left field. Unbelievable! Phillies three, Mets one. Soak it in. There are even some Phillies fans wearing red shirts standing in appreciation. What a smile David Wright has on his face. And after the game, I was on the bus. We're going back to the hotel. David was sitting right behind me. And I turned to David and said, you know, I got to tell you, I can probably count on one hand the number of times that I have felt goosebumps while I was making a call. And, And that home run was one of those moments. And we'll replay that for David tonight. Um, because he was so appreciative and he was kind of like amazed that I would say that to him. But, uh, you know, again, I've known David since the day he came up and he's kind of everybody's favorite around the club anyway. So that all factors into the emotion of that call. So I would say that one would be a little bit easier to discern as opposed to that little crank in my voice that I referred to on the other one. Well, that's beautiful stuff you shared. The uh, the personal, re- really on both fronts. And uh, there's another one, we're... real quickly. Johan Santana's no hitter. Hmm. Um, you know, the final out in 2012. The Mets were playing their 8,020th game in their history, and they'd never had a no hitter. And I had long since just sort of um, assumed that they were never going to throw one. For whatever reason, it was fated that, you know, an organization that produced Tom Seaver and Jerry Kuzman and Nolan Ryan and Dwight Gooden and had David Cohn and so many others would never get a no-hitter. 
Um, the emotion in my voice when Santana completed that no-hitter, that, that's one, too. And now Santana, perhaps a strike away. Johan sweeps a little dirt away from the left of the pitching rubber, steps behind the rubber, tugs once at the bill of his cap, takes a deep breath, and steps to the third base side of the rubber. Santana into the windup. The payoff pitch on the way. Swung out and missed. Strike three. He's done it. Johan Santana has pitched a no-hitter in the 8,020th game in the history of the New York Mets. They finally have a no-hitter. And who better to do it than Johan Santana? And what a remarkable story. That That's awesome. It, it, it strikes me, Howie, that, that you... Growing up a Mets fan and then doing Mets games for the this this incredible portion of your life, there's very few people that get to do games for their childhood team. Dan Shulman grew up a Blue Jays fan. I know mm-hmm. Jason Benetti grew up a White Sox fan. Not great, um, but but that that's my list. My list is three right now of active broadcasters doing games for their childhood team. Uh, you know what, Matt? I'm glad you touched on that because there used to be the feeling that. A team broadcaster needed to be somewhat, I won't say dispassionate, but emotionally separated from the team if he was going to give you an honest, fair, balanced account of the game. I've always thought that was a lot of hogwash. And and I used myself as an example because, you know, I think I give a pretty honest account of what's happening on the field and no one could have grown up more passionately uh, involved in rooting for the team that he works for than, than I did with the Mets. And mm-hmm. so, whereas I won't say now that it should be a prerequisite, but I think there is a great deal of value in a team hiring a broadcaster who comes from the city where he's going to call or she, if that evolves as it has say in Baltimore with Melanie Newman, you know, I just think that there is cachet in growing up in a city, rooting for a team, and ultimately ascending to the role of that team's play-by-play broadcaster because it's understood that you're going to be fair and honest. Yep, and uh, and passionate, and nobody's harder on a team uh, than the fans who actually care. Uh, so I'd love to ask you in closing, Howie, and you've been generous with your time, for the best piece of advice you ever got, and and, and if you don't mind, I'd, 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 I'd ask it in two parts. One, kind of mechanically for doing the job of play-by-play, um, and then two would be sort of in terms of an overall career um, that has allowed you to flourish as, as long as you have. Well, let's start with the first part. The two years that Gary Cohen and I shared a booth in 2004 and 2005 were invaluable learning experiences for me. Because it's one thing to hear someone describe a game as well as Gary did when he was doing radio. It's another thing to watch him at work. And what I learned from watching Gary was, and I'll just use the one word that supersedes any other when you're a radio broadcaster, you have to learn to describe. And that doesn't mean only describe the ball while it's in play. It's describing everything that the listener cannot possibly see. And that is to say, it's not just a ground ball to short. 
It's maybe a two-hopper or the shortstop gliding to his left or going into the hole to backhand the ball um, on a more complicated play. It's, you know, picking up the runners, knowing where the fielders are. And in the aftermath of an important play, describing not only how the players are reacting on the field, but what's the response in the crowd? What about the other team? You know, as the game moves along, if it seems to be a kind of a slower, more languid pace, what's the weather like? What are the flags <laughs> doing? Um, what's the temperature? Uh, I mean, there are a million things you could describe if you commit your mind to description. That's what radio broadcasting is. And, and I learned that from watching Gary. So that would be the big thing, just leading on that one word that, again, supersedes all others. Describe advice for young broadcasters. Yeah, we're really just in terms of an overall career. Like, you know, I think people dream of, of doing it um, and, and getting there and keeping the job and just all of that. Anything that has worked well for you in that regard. The understanding that you have to be all in. You have to be fully committed. There are thousands of people who will be happy to take your job if you're not willing to put in the time and the energy. And, and those are linked, you know. Um, you can put in the time, but if you're not energetic about it, it's going to sound like you're killing time. You've got to be fully committed, particularly, you know, when you start looking at some of the things that an average listener or viewer wouldn't necessarily think about. Because in baseball, the schedule is so unforgiving and travel has become so much more difficult and complicated over the last 20 years. And that's on an increasing basis annually. Um, it challenges you. It challenges you mentally because you've, you've got to find enough sleep or caffeine to get you through the next day, next game. And as you get older, and I'm going to be 70 years old, God willing, in February, it takes a toll. And I know I've spoken to a number of my contemporaries, and, and we've all been able to, to cut back now. A lot of us in my age range are doing now, I'm doing 125 this year, maybe next year it'll be a little bit less. Um, but a lot of us are trying to find that sweet spot where we can keep doing this for a few more years, hopefully at the level that we've been able to maintain um, without sounding like, it's gotten the better of us. So you've got to really be committed to every aspect of the job. And if if you're too overwhelmed by fatigue to do the preparation or to find the energy to present the game in an energetic fashion, then it's probably time to think about doing something else. Well, stay hydrated, Howie, yeah. uh, and, <laughs> yeah. and and don't miss dinner. That's my uh, that's my favorite. It's my favorite answer to that question all all year long. That, that's for sure. Um, you're sounding great, and uh, really appreciate you you chatting and uh, and opening up the way you have, and and uh, enjoyed this very much. So thank you so much. My pleasure, man. I enjoyed it too. Be well. What a pleasure to talk to Howie. And how about that, Johan Santana? no-hitter highlight that is outstanding the 8,020th game a perfect detail to mix in with the context there and as always our producer ryan porth does a great job grabbing those highlights and slotting those in so much i loved about the conversation with howie where he exists on that scale with technician and entertainer at either end 
It was intriguing to him when I asked it, and you know how it's interesting to me. And him admitting that when he was doing the talk show on WFAN, it wasn't the ideal fit for his skills. That's great, great self-awareness right there. And I'll be left with the pay-it-forward kindness issue as it relates to Howie. Mets fans, if you found this podcast because of Howie, please tell a friend. And feel free to dig into the back episodes for conversations that we're really proud of around here. My producer is Ryan Porth. The collaborator on the PBP, Voices of Baseball, is James Vickery. The theme music comes from the great Kurt Morrison of Tributosaurus. Find this podcast, the PBP, Voices of Baseball, on the Odyssey app. And wherever you get your podcasts, it's from 2400 Sports, Odyssey, and Major League Baseball. The PBP, Voices of Baseball. I'll bring you the people who bring you the game. <laughs>